greet you all in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, it's a privilege to be in the house of the Lord this evening. And I just want to say thank you to the leadership of the church just for allowing me to uh, mount this pulpit. It is indeed the month of October. Personally, uh, one of the most restless months for me <laughs> because of the heat. I am, I want a low tolerance for heat, <laughs> as I'm sure many of us are. There's nothing more refreshing than after a long day at work, finding a very cold cup of water to quench one's thirst. It brings life to the body, so to speak. I wonder what you would do if after such a day you were parched, your throat was dry, you reached for the closest cup of water you could find and found that it was lukewarm. Today I just want us to consider the lukewarm church according to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. I'll preface our time together by saying this. What makes you say to God be the glory? What makes you say I am weak but you are strong? What makes you proclaim all the way my Savior leads me? What have I to ask beside? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we want to say thank you for your mercies on you every month. We thank you for the privilege of being in your presence. As our hearts declare, I was glad, very glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord today. I pray, mighty God, that may your spirit lead us, may you teach us. In all truth, may you guide us, open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear that you may transform our hearts by your word, sanctifying us through and through, and that we may be zealous for good works. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What makes you proclaim time and time again, God is good? What is it that makes you say he has done marvelous things? What makes you say, I worship you, O God, because of this, this, and the other? I want to propose that it is the same thing that caused David to pen down Psalm and chapter 18. When the reality of who God was became apparent to him, when the reality of what God had done came to his mind, he was able to say, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, 
and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. The reality that God had delivered him from the hand of Saul led him to this exclamation, to this praise, to this worship of God. What makes you find joy? What makes you lift, lift your hands to God? What makes you bow down and what prompts you to do good work? I would like to propose that it is the reality of what God has done within you. It is that reality that causes you to rise in the morning and say, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. It is the reality of what God has done that makes you take to the streets and preach Christ. But more times than not, that reality of what God has done fades in the toil, in the hustle, and the bustle of life. Sometimes it loses meaning. Sometimes even with those of us who preach, tend to lose our reason for doing so. I would like to argue that the key to a revival is an awakening of the reality of God within us. That firm belief that God is at work in you and I. That firm belief that even though I run out of resources, God will provide. That even if I am spent, God is my strength. I believe it is an awakening of that reality that causes us to run back to God and say to God be the glory. Great things he has done. I would like us to consider a church today that seems to have lost sight of that reality. John is on the island of Patmos, exiled because of the message that he carries. He is exiled for the gospel's sake. And it is on that island that he has this encounter, this vision of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. John would say he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The Lord has different messages for certain churches in Asia Minor. The Lord introduces himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. What John sees is one who appears as the Son of God, in his hand holding seven stars, walking among seven lampstands, which are the seven churches in Asia Minor. 
To the first church, Jesus would write, would say, to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He would begin, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He will say, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but yet he will still bring a charge against them. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. To the second church in Smyrna, Jesus would say to the messenger of that church, write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. He would recognize their tribulation and their poverty. He would recognize that there are those who slander them. And he would say to them, do not, do not fear, uh, they do not fear what you are about, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. To Pergamum, he would introduce himself, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. He would still bring a charge against them, but I have a few things against you. You have some here that hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To Theatira, Jesus would introduce himself, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first, and still he would bring a charge against them. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. In Revelation chapter 3, we see a dead church of Sardis. God would introduce himself in the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. To Philadelphia, the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. He would say again, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that you are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Lastly, and the subject of our consideration, we have a church called Laodicea, or the church of the Laodiceans. And to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The last and probably the worst of the seven churches at Laodicea. If you have heard any message preached from this passage, you have probably heard it this way. You need to be hot for God. That you need to be on fire for Him. That you should not be cold. We attribute coldness perhaps to a hardness of heart, to a lack of fervor, to a lack of commitment. Typically when you say to someone, my heart is cold, you don't mean that in a positive way. But we are encouraged time and time again to be on fire for God. To not let our faith grow cold. In that sense, hotness is used to refer to commitment and all the positive attributes you can think of and coldness is used in the negative. But I ask a question, why would God will that you be cold as opposed to being lukewarm? It does not make sense. Why would God prefer you to be cold towards him in that sense? as opposed to being lukewarm. It's clear from our passage that being lukewarm is being used in a negative sense. But the question is, is being cold being used in the negative sense? 
this evening I want to propose that that is not the case. That both cold and hot in this particular context have been used in a positive sense. And I'll use a little bit of background just to explain that metaphor that Jesus uses. First things first, I would like us to remember one thing, that good works stem from God's faithfulness, not man's abundance. Good works stem from God's faithfulness, not yours and mine's abundance. To say it differently, the works of the church ought to overflow out of the reality of God in it, not a product of self-sufficiency. That when we do a work for God, when we commit ourselves to God's work, it should not be out of the sufficiency of our well-being, our wealth. It should not be out of things that we possess and we may possess plenty. But what should make us rise up every morning and say, I will be faithful to God, is the reality of what God has done within us. That way, even when the resources run dry, the drive to pursue God's work remains alive. That way, even when your money runs out, you can still give from your nothingness. But if the dependence is on what you have, your substance, or what you carry within you, your zeal, your charisma, if that's what you depend on, when the thorns of life begin to grow and choke the life out of you, your zeal will run dry. But if the source of your zeal is that reality of God's faithfulness, even in the scorching heat of October, you will remain faithful to God. Jesus introduces himself using a very unique title, the words of the Amen. Used as a noun perhaps only one other time in scripture, as far as I could find, Isaiah chapter 65, it is a, quite a unique title, the Amen. Uh, many times when we encounter the word Amen, uh, would be as an adverb, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you, or most assuredly, I say unto you. The word there used is Amen. And so when Jesus is saying, truly I say unto you, he would be saying, amen, I say unto you. Or most assuredly, I say unto you. But in this particular case, he introduces himself as the amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of God's creation. In Isaiah 65, verse 16, translated as the God of truth, it reads the God of Amen. 
or the God of faithfulness. Amen, as I've already mentioned, it could mean verily, truly, or if used to perhaps paraphrase a statement at the end of a statement, would say, so let it be. It's often to affirm the truthfulness of a statement, or the steadfastness of a statement, or perhaps the certainty of a statement, most assuredly, I say unto you. It is a marker of emphasis introducing a statement as of great importance. Verily I say unto you, this is a steadfast saying. This is a saying that will not change or cannot change. It is a statement of truth. Verily I say unto you, but Jesus here uses it as a noun, the amen, the faithful, and the true witness. I felt this introduction was very important to what follows in this letter, because it introduces a little bit of what Christ wants to address in Laodicea. The Amen, the Faithful, the True Witness. It seems like these titles seem to interpret each other, each adding a deep understanding of who Christ Jesus is. That is pointing to his deity. Introducing himself as the Amen, basically as the God of truth. John in John chapter 14 verse 6 to 7 would say in the words of Jesus I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me he's introducing himself as the essence of truth itself he's introducing himself in this way as a confirmation of God's promises. Paul would help us to understand this in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 when he says the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That Jesus is the confirmation of God's promises. He is the reality of God's promises. He is the manifestation of God's promises. He is the, uh, the visible uh, personality of God's faithfulness. How do we know that God is faithful? Through what Jesus has done. How do we know that God is steadfast? That his word is unchanging, that it is reliable through what Jesus has done. And so it is important that he introduces himself in this way. Adding to that, he says he is the beginning or the originator of God's creation. The same John would remind us in John 1 and verse 1 saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And so in, in the book of Revelation, it says the beginning of God's creation. He's not saying that he's the one that God created first. But all he's saying is that he has existed with God from the very beginning. Nothing was created that was created. Nothing was made that was made without him. It was through him that everything was established. Hence he introduces himself as the originator of God's creation. This introduction is critical to this church. It is about God's faithfulness in contrast to their lack thereof. It is about God's steadfastness in contrast to their lack thereof. It is a reminder to them that the reason why they ought to do good works is not because of their abundance, but it is because of what he has done. It is the reason that you and I find it within ourselves to be in the house of God. It is the reason why you and I find ourselves time in and time out in a bad situation but still able to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. If you and I drew that out of our nothingness, those words would not come out. But we draw it out of the reality of who God is and what he has done. There are a few things that are important to note in order for us to understand what Jesus is talking about. He's basically saying to them, you are to me like a lukewarm water. Your works are to me like disgusting lukewarm water. All I want to do is vomit you out. That is not a flattering thing to hear. Not from anyone, let alone the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one, but you are lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out. I'm getting ready to do that because I cannot stand lukewarmness. What is he talking about? I have argued that coldness is not being used in the negative. There is a metaphor that Jesus is using that the people in this time would understand. They would understand the reference he was making. And once this letter is read, they would understand exactly what he is talking about. It is a bit difficult in our time because we are separated by so much from the time John pens down this part of Revelation. Laodicea. Laodicea was known to be a center of trade. It was an intersecting point of major trade routes in Asia Minor. And so many people would come in and out doing trade and so on and so forth. That being the case, it had a thriving banking industry. It was a very rich town. It was a very wealthy town. It was so wealthy that some writers point to an earthquake that hit 
that region and Laodicea refused any assistance from outside because they had the financial capacity to rebuild themselves. It is like an earthquake hits Zambia, God forbid, and Zambia refuses any kind of aid from outside, saying we have the resources to rebuild, and Zambia rebuilds better than before. That is how wealthy Laodicea was. We see this inference in what Jesus Christ is saying. You say I am wealthy, and I need nothing. I need no one. I have everything I need. It was a wealthy, wealthy place. Not only that, it was known for its medical university. Uh, perhaps something would equate to, uh, I can't think of perhaps one of the world's best medical universities, Johns Hopkins maybe. Let us call it the Johns Hopkins of its day known for its uh, speciality, especially when it came to treating eye infections, you will notice Jesus mentioned something called salve. He's calling them blind, saying you, you need to get salve so that we treat your eyes so that you can see. The irony of, of what Jesus is using against Laodicea, he's using the very things they think are their source of strength, are their source of, source of self-sufficiency against them. Their wealth, their medical technology, they have a thriving black wool industry, uh, perhaps to manufacture expensive clothes and, and cloaks that you would see on celebrities. They are known for their wool. Uh, but Jesus is calling them naked. I hope you are seeing the irony of what Jesus is saying. He's saying you are blind, yet you have the best medical universities. You are naked, yet you are producing wool. You, are, you claim you are rich, but you are wretched, pitiable, and poor. I hope you can appreciate the irony of what Jesus is doing. But perhaps key to this metaphor that Jesus is using, I would rather you be hot or cold, is pointing to their insufficient water supply. In all their wealth, and in view of the growth of population, they do not have a sufficient water supply. And they have to pipe their water from a town called Denizli, six miles south of where they are. They have built these underground water pipes or aqueducts to transfer water from there for their citizens to drink. Denizli is known for its hot springs. And so the water that is flowing through those pipes by the time it reaches Laodicea is lukewarm and dirty. And so the tourist who is unwitting would reach there, draw some water and want to drink, and the first thing they would do is spit the water out. Because it was not, uh, it, it, it was not drinkable that way. It was lukewarm, it was not pleasant, it was not refreshing. It was almost good for nothing. North of Laodicea is a town called Herapolis, 
about six miles to the north. Herapolis has plenty of hot springs as well. It is known as a place of treatment. These water springs, these hot springs are used for medicinal purposes. And so you as a traveler through Herapolis with your sore muscles and, and so on and so forth would sit in those springs as you would in a, as you would in a jacuzzi to, to, as a therapy to bring healing to your body. These hot springs were good for something. Because of those springs, Herapolis was a major health center. Uh, anyone who traveled through there that was one of the reasons they would do so for the healing properties of these hot springs when jesus says i'd rather you be hot he's referring to that when he says i'd rather you be cold he's referring to about 12 miles to the east of them a town you'd be familiar with colossae which is known for its cold refreshing water and this water is flowing from the snowy caps of Mount, uh, Mount Kadam. It is cold and it refreshes the body. That is why Colossae is one of those towns that was inhabited first in that region. Because it had nice, cold, pure, refreshing water to drink. With that in view, look at the metaphor that Jesus uses. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. You are neither refreshing, nor are you a source of healing. What are you good for? You say, I am rich, I have all these things. But to my mouth, you are like your water. It's lukewarm. I cannot drink from it. I cannot stand it. I cannot tolerate it. Notice that Jesus has nothing good to say about them. He points to their works, saying, you are neither hot nor cold. They are probably doing much, but he's saying what you are doing is not refreshing to anyone, neither is it healing to anyone. He's not saying, I want you to be cold towards me, and I want you to be on fire for me. He's saying, I would like you to at least be refreshing or a place of healing, but you are good for nothing, yet you have everything. The works of the Laodiceans were likened to worthless lukewarm water that made God want to vomit them out. They were rich. They said, I need nothing. In verse 17 of Revelation chapter 3, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, 
and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see the iron. They have everything. Yet as far as Christ is concerned, they have nothing. What makes you do good work for God? In life you will get tired. You will be exhausted. And sometimes the reason for doing good gets lost in translation. Sometimes it becomes out of a sense of duty. Sometimes it becomes because it is required. Sometimes it becomes because no one else would do it. My challenge to us today is this. May God renew that purpose for which we do good. May God renew in us the reality of what he has done. May the reason for why we sing hallelujah not be because we have to sing on Sunday, but because what God has done cannot be kept inside. May the reason we raise our hands to God, may the reason we give to the poor, may the reason we evangelize not be because we have to, or because there's no one else to do it. May it be because the source of life lives within us. May it be because his joy is bubbling inside us. Uh, like a fountain that cannot be kept inside. That may it flow out like a refreshing stream of water to the nations. Not because we must but because the love of God compels us. The works we do for God are not because we have much. It is because of his faithfulness. It is because he is the amen. It is because he is steadfast. It is the reason we would sing the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end they are new every single morning. That refreshment comes from the throne of God, not from your substance. Lest that substance runs out and you have no reason to be faithful to God. God is telling them you have become unfaithful. You have lost the real reason why you have everything you have. You have lost the purpose for which I have set you apart. You think you are doing all these things because you have much. And you are so arrogant as to say we don't need anyone else. We don't need any help from anyone. And Jesus would say I am spitting you out. Your works to me are like lukewarm water. God is calling the Laodicean church to be zealous in doing good works. Don't be mistaken, he still loves them. Verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. 
the irony of verse 20, addressing the church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You would think Christ would be in the church for the simple reason that the church does not exist without Christ. Without Christ, there is no Christian. But there he is saying, I stand at the door and knock. Somewhere in their works, they have kicked him out. Somewhere in all the things they are doing, they have put him outside. And he's saying, hello, remember, I am still out here. I am knocking. If anyone hears, let me in. I will dine with you. It is the church he is talking to. I am outside. I see you doing all these wonderful things, but you, you have left me out. The owner of the church, the head of the church, I, I am waiting and I am knocking outside. Open the door and I'll come in. Be zealous and repent and I will come in. I will bring revival to you. I will forgive your sins and remember them no more. I will bring to your mind a reminder why you say God is so good. Why you say God is a wonderful God. I will bring to your reminder what that means. The things I have done for you. From that, you will be able to continue the good works. But at least this time, they will be refreshing. At least this time, there will be a source of healing. As things stand, the Lord does not want any part in what the Laodiceans are doing. Do not give to God simply because you have. Give to Him because the reality of His faithfulness to you compels you. One who is aware of the magnitude of God's faithfulness to him is compelled to do good works, not by the availability of resources, but by the mere fact that they did not deserve God's grace. If resources determine how much good we do, pride steps in. If what we have is what determines how much we do, we begin to boast in what we have done. We begin to boast in how much we have and how many people we have helped. I have given the single biggest donation to this fund. I have given so much and so much. You should appreciate what I do. That is what giving out of your abundance does. It brings in pride. I am rich, I don't need anyone. I have everything I need I, and I'm doing good works because of that. Remember this, resources always seem small if we rely on them to do good works. Let God's faithfulness lead what you do. Faithfulness does not say I will do good because I am rich or when I become wealthy I will do much. Faithfulness says because of the reality of what God has done for me, I will give it all. It is that thing that led the Corinthians to excel in the grace of giving. Paul would remind us that they gave out of their abject poverty. They had nothing, yet they gave everything. 
their giving was not based on what they had. Their giving was based on the reality of what God had done. Brethren, doing good work out of your own strength is tiresome. Doing good work out of the size of your bank account can be depressing. You will look at how much you have given and how much others have not given. You will look at how faithful you are and how unfaithful others are. Look at me, I am better than that tax collector. I do this, I do that. I fast every week. I give 10% of what I have, but that one, that one is a sinner. That one doesn't even deserve to be offering a prayer. Yet there is one giving out of the reality of what God is doing. He is beating his chest and is saying, God, have mercy on me. There is one who is giving not because he has, but because he knows what God has done. And so why do you worship God? Why do you sing praises to him? Why do you do all of this? Why do you attend to visitors on Sunday? Why do you commit to services Sunday in and Sunday out? Bible study, first service, evening service, prayer meeting, cell meeting, prayer meeting again, back on Sunday. Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Is it to show that you are more faithful than others? I challenge you. May God revive that purpose. It will not be tiresome to be in the house of God. It will not be tiresome, it will not be exhausting to do His will. Because you will draw from His fountain and not yours that tends to run dry. This is my prayer for us. That we will be zealous and repent. That our works will not turn out to be as filthy runs before Him. As Isaiah would say in Isaiah 64 and verse 6, that all our works have become as filthy rags. As James would reiterate that sentiment, saying faith without works is dead. The opposite is true. Works stemming out of a faithless heart are just as filthy. My prayer is that the amen, the faithful, the true witness of God, the confirmation of God's promises, the one in whom God's promises and yes are yes and amen will revive us, that he will awaken us to what he has done, that we will say I was glad, very glad, when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord today, that when we sing I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride, that our worship will not be out of the, out of the reservoirs of our hearts, but it will be based on what the Amen has done. Amen. Our gracious God, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are the amen, the faithful, the true witness.
In you the promises of God are yes and amen. Our prayer is, O oh God, revive us again. In Jesus' name we pray.